Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 2. I'm your host, Casey Tigert. I'm an author, a pastor, and spiritual director. There's a quote by the Austro-Hungarian poet Rainer Maria Rilke that says this, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Our questions are the things that give our life seasoning. Our questions are good. As kids, we come out of the womb wired for curiosity. I wrote a book about that a couple years ago called Becoming Curious, A Spiritual Practice of Asking Questions. And in it, I talked about how without questions, we wouldn't know anything about the world in which we lived. Questions are good. Questions can be holy. And questions can also be sacred. And that is the title of Kelly Fabian's book, where she takes a transformative journey through the Bible with multi-length exercises that help us to ask new questions about the Bible, what it might be doing, what it might be saying. My conversation with Kelly not only engages with her questions about the Bible, but also with the narrative of her own life. You see, because the reality is, none of us come to the spiritual life with a blank slate. We all come with experiences. We come with successes. We come with failures. We come with understanding and wisdom, and we come with ignorance and foolishness. And that's true for everybody. Everyone who wants to enter the spiritual journey will enter with insecurities, enter with scars, enter with fears, enter with trepidation. More than any of that, all of us enter into this journey with questions. And so, how can our questions be sacred? Well, that is just a wonderful question. All right, so where we always start with guests is a question about wisdom. Um, Namely, if you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you start? It's a great, hard question. Um, I like to start with the easy ones. (laughs) I guess in my own mind, I certainly know of people who are not Christian who I would say are very wise. And so my initial thought is to tie it to the spirit. And then I think, well, there are people who I know who aren't Christian, who are incredibly wise, or I would say are incredibly wise. And then as I think that through, um, I always think the wisest people have something of the spirit in them. So maybe it does come down to that in the end. Um, I think of wisdom as someone who thinks deeply and cares deeply and draws on their experience and, their intelligence and maybe stories that they know they can draw on sort of a deep and wide range of things. I mean, I don't know a better word to say there Um, in order to guide someone. And I think that guidance ends up being personal to the person they're speaking to or the audience they're speaking to when it's then guided by the spirit. So I don't think they would ever print that in the dictionary as a definition, but uh, <laughs> number one, because it's too long, but um, maybe it's too convoluted. But there, it's something about drawing on a deep and wide range of subjects and experiences guided by the spirit that um, leads to wisdom. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's, 
It isn't an easy word to define. As a matter of fact, it seems like it's very contextual. Yeah. Uh, what's wise in this particular situation, in this place in the world at this time of of history may not be wise, yeah. you know, at any one before or one after. I love the the words that came out as you were talking about that, the idea of people who are filled with the Spirit, uh, though they may not identify with a Christian tradition. Uh, it's, it's almost like there's a democracy to the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's and it's not anything we necessarily choose. Uh, have you, is that something that you've seen in your own life and ministry and family? Yes. I mean, I would say that um, it certainly has been my experience that God has used different people in my life to speak through who aren't necessarily Christians. Um, and in that sense, how I, you know, I don't know how it works exactly, but um, has, has the Holy Spirit has spoken to me through people who aren't Christians. Um, an example that comes to mind in particular it was um, being in the Middle East and um, hearing from people from all different backgrounds and f- just feeling very sure that the Holy Spirit was present. Um, I don't know if you could say in them, I mean, this gets complicated theologically, I think, but I felt the strongest presence of the Spirit when I was with people, different kinds of people in the Middle East. Yeah. And it was very odd. Like, I remember <sighs> thinking, this is, I don't understand this, and yet um, it, it felt very clearly true. Do you sense that there's a fear uh, a fear of loosening the loosening the boundaries of God's spirit to do things that we may not approve of or we may not have boundaries for that we, we may not even be comfortable with? Yes. In fact, it's funny you say that because um, in my own conversion story, um, there's no doubt in my mind that before I made any decision to follow Christ, the Holy Spirit was in me. Um, and I, I could share that story. And when I tell it sometimes, I feel like people are saying, oh, well, that's not how it works. Um, here's how it works. You confess faith and then the Holy Spirit comes into you. And that was just, I feel like the Holy Spirit is what is who allowed me to accept Christ. And so I, um, I'm confused by it. I don't, I don't feel the need, though to understand it exactly. I just sort of go, yeah, this is not how I understand it to be, but this is clearly what's happening. Um, so I think that being okay with that mysterious part of things feels fine to me. I, not that I don't seek to understand. I, I definitely do. But um, in a lot of cases, I just think, oh, this is just cool. I don't know how this is happening, but I'm good with it. You, you brings to mind this story. And, and I think the Bible will mess with us that way, if we let it, it's the story in Acts where Peter runs into this group of of people who are all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they haven't been baptized yes. with the right baptism, yes. and and they go, "What should we do?" And I I love to picture Peter just sort of shrugging his shoulders and going, "Well, let's just do the other one now, I guess. <laughs> right. There's nothing stop. You know, it's, it's so out of not order, but okay, of, yeah." <laughs> 
<laughs> it's so not official. And so, you know, the book has been shredded. Like, well, we might as well do the Jesus baptism yeah. now. So yeah. there's that boundary-breaking nature to the Spirit that I think can go in in negative directions, but it can also go in extremely positive directions. Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned um, as, a, as an author as a writer, as uh, a pastoral presence, and all the things that you get to do, uh, I believe that we all bring this uh, narrative with us. And it's always writing. We're always writing it because everything we do is attached to it. Talk a little bit about that key story, uh, the story that you share in your book about um, how you came to this new understanding of being with God in the midst of a lot of success mm-hmm. Uh, in the midst of a life that, for a lot of people, looks incredibly enticing. <clears throat> um, so I, you know, I don't know when God started working on me and pursuing me. Um, I mean, from the beginning, I suppose, but I didn't know it until much later. And um, there was a season of my life that I was very successful in my work and in life, so to speak. Like if you looked at my life on paper or something, you'd be like, oh yeah, this is, you know, she achieved the greatest success. Um, and in some sense, uh, that's true from the world standards. And in some sense, I definitely bought into that um, and continued to. And it led me down paths that I now... I don't like to regret things because it's kind of a waste of time, but I, I look back and I just kind of go, who was that person? Um, and what's funny about it is all along the way, I can see markers of God's presence now that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of then. Um, but everything sort of lined up right. And yet I still felt an incredibly deep loneliness and emptiness and like, I, I couldn't fill it with the things that I had learned fill that, you know, whether it's relationships or drinking or socializing or buying stuff or, ha- you know, flying first class, like, oh, you get to be the person that walks on that red carpet. And um, that was cool the first time. And then when you're flying 100,000 miles a year, you can understand that it just is unsatisfying. Um, so all that to say, I think I was in, in the midst of that, which looked like building success. What I was actually doing was seeking something else. And God was pointing me in that direction through lots of people that I encountered and didn't know what impact they would have along the way. Um, and then I had like many people do sort of a crisis period of time where I, um, it was in 2001, you know, so September 11th happened. And just before that, four days before that, my daughter was diagnosed with epilepsy. And then my husband at the time had this major surgery and almost died. And then within 18 months, basically, we got divorced. And um, a lot of that, I mean, a lot of it was circumstantial and had nothing to do with doing or not doing anything. And in the midst of all that, you know, I started to struggle significantly, had what I now refer to as the dark years period, um, which was followed by a great 
awesome light um, a number of years later. But I can see in all of that the places where God was seeking me out. And I was either just blind to it or didn't know what it was or rejected it, you know, or one of all three of those. Um, But all of those experiences, I think, ended up being the way in which God got my attention and and brought me to himself. And, um, you know, the word I use is kind of dumb, but it's it's not at the same time found me. Uh, of course, I wasn't lost to him, but um, I was lost. And so through all of that, I, I got I got found. So this foundness, this, uh, this litany of memories of what it was like to be um, a successful trial lawyer, to be uh, in, in a marriage, to struggle with a health crisis with your daughter, with your former husband, to go through a divorce... How how do you bring those pieces? How do you feel like those pieces of your life, those memories, mm-hmm. have translated into the book that you've written? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, well, for I mean, one very significant way, and the most straightforward, I suppose, is that in the middle of that crisis period. Um, I, I, I share this in the book. Um, I got a Bible and I like, I literally have no recollection of where in the world I got this Bible. This was before Amazon. Um, I think this is when there were those things like bookstores. You Wait, there was a time before Amazon. Um, yeah, I know. Weird. Um, I must have gone, and I, I, I quite literally just cannot remember, to a Christian bookstore and bought a Bible. And um, so I had this Bible, and, um, you know, during this, this period in my life that felt very dark in a lot of ways, I opened it and was looking at it and trying to, I guess, find something. And um, it was then that I found this passage in Romans where Paul says, and I'm going to misquote it, but something to act in accordance with the faith that has been given to you. And I circled that and I like drew a line over to the side as any good lawyer would and wrote the date, which I think is hilarious now. And more importantly, wrote a question, why don't I have faith? So essentially, if this is true, that we are to act according to the faith that's been given us, is it, act, is it true that we've all been given faith? And if that's true, I, I, like I missed it. I somehow thought I was born without it or incapable of having it. And so I just posed this question in the, in the margin of this Bible, why don't I have faith? Um, and so in that sense, those experiences led me directly to ask that question, um, cause I was really struggling with my life and what I was doing and all of that and asked that question. And that question I believe was, um, a question that God answered three years later. And what I love so much about God among so many other things is that, um, he didn't say to me, here are the five reasons you don't have faith. Um, he he just kind of crossed my path, and like I said, you know, gave me the Holy Spirit and said in response, "Now you do." 
Hmm. And I suddenly did. And it's one of my spiritual gifts now, I believe, is faith. And I just, like, I love that. It's so funny. Um, I'm trying to think of other, I mean, there's all, your whole life really, you could say, culminates in, you know, different moments. But, um, you know, my experiences growing up have largely influenced the things I focus on in the book. Um, I'm thinking of um, just experiences I had with my parents' own divorce and with moving from my town in Michigan to Chicago and things like that. Like all of that stuff I, I find resonance in because I was shaped by all of it. And the book is really suggesting um, that we all need to be reshaped in a sense. I sense uh, in you and in through the book and through conversation uh, that I think anyone who's gone through a massive amount of experiences in their life that are from various stripes, from success to suffering to, you know, the dark years, as you called them, and then coming out into the light, there's a, I feel like there's an integration that happens when we're willing mm-hmm. to embrace all that as part of the story. Because our other choice is to say, well, this doesn't really belong. And we'll just put that aside. And this isn't the God stuff because this isn't the good stuff. This is, this is the hard stuff and we just won't think about that anymore. And what I, what I sense in the book is that same, you're bringing that same sense of integration, even into the whole idea of place and posture and the the P's that you line up, place, posture, a plan, Mm -hmm. presence, and pen and paper. There's this, uh, sort of aesthetic piece, there's a space piece, there's a philosophical piece, and then there's a practical and how that whole cosmos of our life fits together. Is that something you set out to do or is that something that just sort of naturally flowed out of your writing practice or? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I haven't heard it said quite that way. I really like that. I mean, I guess what comes to my mind is that I believe wholeheartedly that we can bring our full selves before God and that there's no, there's no moment of our life we've been outside of God's presence and love. And so I don't think there's like a time when I was operating outside of God's view or love. And so every part of my life I'm, willing to and comfortable to and desire to bring into his presence because um, I want to find wholeness. And if, if I'm, if I'm only bringing parts or only comfortable bringing parts or feel great amounts of shame around certain parts of it, then it, it feels like I'm essentially saying God doesn't want to see that and can't heal that. Um, so I'm not sure I thought about it exactly the way you're saying, but I certainly believe that in order for us to be transformed into Christ likeness and to be healed and made whole, we have to bring all of it and that it is, um, you know, God isn't saying, oh, not that, not that. He's sort of saying, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. And it's not a place of shamefulness or yeah, like 
I'm really not going to bring that part of my life in. You don't want to see that. I think, you know, as a parent, you learn, you do want to see that. It may be hard to see and you may be heartbroken about what your child has gone through, but you would never say, I reject that, of that part of you. You would say, oh, come, come be healed. Come be made whole. Yeah. There's a, throughout the book and, and I, I believe this because you swim in the streams of spiritual formation like I do. One of the big questions we wrestle with for ourselves and for others in the journey of formation is always a question of identity. Not only yes. who is God, but who am I? And what does the connection between those two indicate? Uh, is, there, is there a presence of that idea, that identity question, in the way that you start the chapters with the B they're all begin with the, they're beginning with the word be a lot of them. Um, hmm. a lot like, uh, yeah. the, the Bible scholar Warren Wearsby started with his studies with B. Is there an identity theme that's coming through there? Yes. And you know, there's a whole section on identity. And, um, one thing that I, I, we like it's we are certain things in Christ that whether we believe them or not are true, and it's sort of like um, when you when you say be this way. First of all, Jesus said that a lot, and I feel like reiterating that is it's it's almost like be what you already are. You you know in that in that particular section that goes through Ephesians on identity, um, when you, when you get to the end, there's a long list of things that you are, and you cannot believe that you are those things, but the reality is that in Christ you are. And so be them, um, act as if they are true because they are, even if you don't believe them. I think there are things that we can live into, um, before we're actually fully there, most things probably. And so, yes, identity is a huge, um, struggle I think that we all have. It's a huge struggle that I have. It's a daily, for me, it's a daily practice, remembering, um, being loved. My husband is a pastor at a church near O'Hare, and they just recently changed their whole kind of, um, it's not a motto, I can't think of the right word to say, but to live loved. Hmm. And I think initially that can sound like it's focused on you, like live loved. Okay, we're great. We're all going to be here and feeling loved. But what it means is that if you live out of place, out of a place of knowing that you're loved by God fully and and foreverly, that's not a word. Um, it is now. <laughs> it is now. It changes everything, and that's all about identity. If you know that you are loved, um, and you can live out of that place. I mean, God can do anything through you, but so often we don't live out of that. What are the helpful reminders for people? Uh, I know there are folks who are listening to this who, and because we do, you and I both do this too, who really struggle to keep that in mind uh, when there's so much that reminds us of what we're not. Um mm. What is it that is the, the, the acute, the chronic reminder, the constant reminder for you? It's a better, that's a happier word than chronic. Uh, the constant reminder for you of that identity. 
I have to just, it's a practice like any other. I, it's not a feeling is the most important thing I could say. Um, you know, there are people who you, you might talk to who say, you know, I'm just, I feel so loved by God. I'm so loved in love with Jesus and which I, I'm not saying I doubt in any way. And I do not feel, it's not a feeling for me. And I wish it was. And I feel like it's almost like you're not supposed to say that it's, it's, it's just a truth. It is a true fact. And whether I feel it or not, and, you know, and sometimes I would say, I guess I do more than others, but I, I just have to remind myself, here's what's true about, about how God sees me. And, um, I have to, like, I have it written down places, you know, I have it. Um, I, when I pray, you know, sometimes you hear people end their prayers with, you know, we love you so much, God. Um, you know, of course, that's not a bad thing to do. I, I will just say, thank you for loving me as a way of ending instead. And that reminds me um, of that. So, I, you know, the shortest way to say it is it, it is a practice, a spiritual practice for me to, to remember that I'm loved and that my identity is in Christ. So it really is more of a choice than a feeling. We, we choose to believe it. We choose to live in it rather than we are moved emotionally at all times. I'm having more discussions about that lately, about the mm. relationship of faith and feelings. Uh, because I've, I've seen some people creating a binary that says it's either one or the other. Uh, mm. faith is this hard, objective thing, and feelings are these flighty, irrational things, and you can't trust them. And, and I, I don't see that in Scripture. I see an inheritance that's filled with both at the same time. Even, yeah. um, even Psalm 22, the whole, why have you forsaken me? The second stanza is, but you're God, and uh, I'm choosing <laughs> to believe that. But why is this happening? But I know you're, you know, it's back and forth. And so I see this raw emotion, but also this choice. Yeah. It's one of the downsides of being human, you know, is um, in in our life, at least in our culture, I guess, this, I suppose it wasn't always this way, but we associate love and being loved with feelings. Um, but the reality is that even in a marriage, you're going to have times when you don't feel something. It doesn't mean you don't love someone and you're consistently making a choice to love them and you've committed to doing that. And that's really, I mean, that's what God has done with us. He is, he's ruggedly committed. Those are Scott McKnight's words to us. Um, and that is the sort of expression of his love is his rugged commitment to us. And we, um, we can make that same rugged commitment to God and to, you know, people without having necessarily feelings all the time. And of course that's not to say feelings are unimportant or they don't matter because I think they do, but um, we can be swayed by that so that on one day when we're feeling something, um, we feel filled with faith. And then a day when we aren't feeling it necessarily, we can become discouraged and feel like, Oh, I've lost my faith or I don't know what I believe anymore. Um, so I think that can be a little deceiving to us. Yeah. And I hear in your response something that I also see in the book, which is it's a very warm book. Uh, it's a very personal mm -hmm. book, but it's also it's also very precise. 
which is kind of what I would expect from someone who has the the presence that you do, but also the background that you do. So there's the there's mm-hmm. a, a warm spirituality, and there's also the precision that you probably had to have in your former work. <laughs> yeah. And it yeah. moves from you have very short practices and then extensive practices throughout the book. What is it that inspired the structure for how you created and put this together? Um, for one thing, I, I was not interested in writing a book that wasn't equipping. Um, one of the things that drove me to it was seeing a lot of people incredibly inspired. Like if you walk around, people are inspired all over the place and no one has changed. Um, course that's an overstatement but there are so many things that inspire us and so little things that are willing to equip us to so that we can be changed so you hear a great talk you hear a great whatever you read a great story and those being inspired matters but in the realm of spiritual transformation um we've got to be equipped in a way that we can move from inspiration to transformation. So that all that to say, I wanted to write a book that would actually help people to be transformed by God, not to transform themselves, but to be transformed. And as I was thinking about that, I, I started thinking about, well, what's the purpose of being transformed? Um, is it just for our own sake? Uh, we can feel better about ourselves. We can, you know, behave morally better, whatever. Um, and I, and I just, I mean, this sounds strange to say, but I was like, Oh no, that the purpose of our transformation is for the sake of others, for the sake of the world, for the sake of, um, being a light to the world. And, and so the form of the book traces this ultimate, uh, formational journey, which is starts with a section called invited and ends with a section called for the sake of others. We are invited into the gospel, invited into this life with Christ for the sake of others. Of course, we are transformed. Of course, our own experience matters. What we do in the midst of that as we follow Jesus matters. And um, it's so that we can serve and love and tell others about Jesus and the life that he's offering. So to do that, though, um, is not based on our own effort. We've all tried, I'm sure, to change behavior and to do this and to do that. Um, and only God can trans- actually change us. And we have to, like, I liked your word precise because I believe that um, as much as we kind of hate it, it, this is a discipline. This is a practice that we have to engage in in order for it to work. Um, and the book takes us through one way of opening ourselves to being transformed. Um, and you could spend way more time in different sections where you need more help, you know, like a lot of us in our culture, culture would need more help in the lament area. Um, and a lot of us would need more in the identity area, um, or, you know, whatever, but, or in the area of distraction and temptation, but the, the, the real form of it was inspired by the idea of we like, no one's changing. Why is that? 
Transformation is the goal. Uh, it it puts skin back on the conversation. I, I love the mm. definition that you're, you're working with is um, Robert Mulholland's definition of spiritual formation is being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. That mm. that idea of it's in and then out. Yeah. Um, you tell a story in the book that captures an idea that you call uh, the disembodied Jesus. Mm. And combats against it. And it's about, um, it's about a trash dump. I, I feel like people, especially coming off the heels of our, just that conversation just now about transformation and that it's a practice and that it's very practical and precise. Could you tell that story about, uh, the trash dump? Yeah. Um, so in 2011, I think it was, I, I had gone to, um, South Africa and Zambia in 2010 and went back in 2011 and got connected with a guy who lit a pastor who lives in Johannesburg. And I had, I think I had a layover in Johannesburg and the next day or two days or something, I was flying up to Zambia. And so I asked him, you know, can we go to some, someone's ministry that might be interesting? And he says, Oh yeah, I have this friend named Mike and he, um, runs something called the trash dump ministry, um, which, you know, I don't, I didn't know what a trash dump was. I mean, it sort of sounds intuitive, but in the sense that this is, it is not intuitive at all. So I was like, great. You know, so I, I went along, we went, um, and met the couple, a couple who runs this ministry in Johannesburg. And first of all, we went to their house and they were, I mean, it was like, the two of them making these small little meals and putting them in a, in like these packages or little um, bowls essentially. And then making these huge containers of, I don't know if it was Kool-Aid, but something like Kool-Aid or lemonade and like really their whole house was, and it was a small house was taken over by this operation and they're putting it in a van. So we drive in this van over to the dump site and it, if you haven't been to a dump site, this is like, we don't see anything like this in the U S um, just an enormous landfill essentially with trash on it. And people have put up temporary homes, which for them are really permanent, but temporary looking homes on this trash dump and they live there. Um, and it's, you know, it's trash, it's dirty. It's, it's awful. It's not made for people to live there, but we, we show up and we are unpacking everything. And the, it mostly at this point was women who were lined up and, and kind of around waiting. And Mike got out. And first of all, it was amazing because everybody was like, oh, Mike, they, you know, they loved saying hi to them. They loved that he would look at them. And I was just kind of watching all of this. And so we start handing out, uh, um, or we first we start with a prayer. I think it was like we got in a circle and he did like a super short sermon kind of thing, like four minutes or something. And, um, and then we sang a song, I believe. And then we started handing out the food and everything and the drinks. And I was thinking, okay, that was fun. That was cool. I wonder if we could go in and see the dump site a little bit more. And then I kind of look over and this long line of people have gotten together and Mike is at the head of the line facing the people. And, um, someone, I, you know, I asked somebody what's happening over there. 
And they said, oh, Mike is um, praying for people. And this woman came over and told me that she had seen people physically healed by him and through his prayers. And, you know, so I was like, oh, I should go over and see what's happening. You know, I want to know how to do this. And, you know, of course, there's nothing magic about it. But um, he just stood there and every person, he had his phone with him and every person who came up, um, he knew their name if they had been there before and he would write down in his phone their prayer requests. And, you know, and there was no sense like we might do where we say, yeah, we'll pray for you. And then we forget, like he wrote every person down um, and it was you know, just amazing. And he would touch them, you know, he would put his hand on their shoulder or on their head um, or wherever they were having pain, he would touch them. It was, it was amazing. So then um, we, he kind of finished with this line and I just was watching him. Then we went into the dump site itself, which is just like a big winding sort of hill essentially with all these homes. And it was like um, walking with Jesus must have been um, because people were just coming out of their homes and yelling to him and saying hi to him. And they would come over and talk to him. And um, there was one guy that came over who was visibly, um, he had open sores on him from HIV and AIDS and was stumbling and was really in bad shape. And, you know, and I got a little bit scared. Um, it was, I hadn't seen this before. And you know, he just, he walked right up to Mike and Mike put his arm, I mean, no concern, just put his arm right around him, said, you weren't looking good. The guy said he needed to go to the doctor or, um, Mike might've suggested, I don't remember exactly. And, um, Mike just sort of offers, well, yep. Um, okay. I'll come by later and we'll see what we're going to do something to that effect. And we're walking away. And I said, well, what are you going to do? That guy needs to, you know, go to the doctor. And he says, I'll come back and take him. I mean, just about as matter of fact as you can imagine, I'll come back and take him to the doctor. We walk a little further. Someone says, oh, I need nails for my, my house. And Mike says, yeah, I've got nails in my van. I'll go back and get them and bring them to you. Another woman has problems. She's clearly drunk and has been drinking. And he talks to her just like he would talk to, you know, the Queen of England. Um, and I just... I mean, I still get moved when I talk about it. That was in 2011 um, because it was just unbelievable the way he treated people with such honor and uh, compassion, but wasn't, he wasn't particularly, um, he was just very matter of fact, which I think we kind of see in Jesus in a way, you know, I hope that was. Yeah. No, that's such a powerful story, and especially because it it connects to this bigger idea that I feel like is alive in your writing, which is there is a a Mike style vocation for every person who follows mm-hmm. Jesus, and it's but it's not. I don't know. Maybe you could comment on this. I feel like too often we see the finished product and say oh, that's yeah. not me. Instead of seeing where Mike was before he became the Mike we know now. Does that make sense? Yes. And I mean, nobody knows that Mike does what he does. I mean, it's not like cameras follow him around. He does this every Saturday morning um, and more. I think that's the days he goes and brings food. But um, I think we, we all know people who we would say, 
um, gosh, they just, they just walk around and they're aware of the people around them and they're serving people all the time. And it's not a, I'm not going to serve like, okay, today's Saturday, the day I'm going to go serve today's Tuesday night. I'm going to go serve today. It's just, it's a constant posture, um, and being aware of the people around you and knowing just like Mike knew, you know, someone might not come to you with open sores, but they've got sores, you know, soul sores or something that, um, they come into your presence for a reason, I believe. And if you can pastor them or, um, speak love toward them, even if you can't meet a particular need that they have, that's, that's loving them in the way Jesus did. It's, it's being very present in a physical way, you know? Yeah. So if you had to say what, what is the gift that you hope this book gives to people who read it? And you can pick multiples. I don't mean to give you a, <laughs> yeah. one definite article, a singular definite article, but what, what gifts or gift do you hope people walk away from your book with? I, I think um, the biggest one is that they would encounter God. The, I mean, I don't care. You could skip every story I write. You could skip, you could have your own questions that God brings up in you. Um, but if, if someone could encounter God through this, that would be the greatest, greatest gift I could give through it. Um, so that would certainly be number one. And I, I've, I've encountered God through it. So I know, (laughs) I know that it's possible. Um, the other thing is, I would, I guess, would be to sort of come to the recognition that this is a process. Spiritual formation is a process, and you, you can just start wherever you are. That's the thing that's amazing about God is that He's not saying, "Okay, go do this, that, and the other thing, and come back to me." He's just saying, "Oh, good, I'm glad you're here, and um, let's get started." And, and the book I'm hoping allows people an entry point if they're feeling like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know where to start. Um, I think you could start on any page in this book. And because it's scripture-based, if you're open to it, I believe God will meet you in it. And then it it just use it as a a light guide, you know. Um, If you can't find your way exactly, just use it as a guide and allow God to speak to you through it. Well, thank you for writing it. Thank you. And giving your time and sacrificing the energy it takes to put something like this into the world. Well, thanks for saying that. It definitely was a a lot of work and in the best possible way. Um, I was telling someone recently that there was a section, and maybe you've experienced this, Casey, where like you just are out of words. I mean, like you couldn't even speak any if you needed to, you know, and I was alone at um, where I was writing and I just was like, okay, I, I'm out of it. I don't have anything left. And I, I listened to that song by David Crowder called here's my heart. At least I think that's what the name of it is, but it you know, has this line, here's my heart, Lord speak. What's true. And I was like laying on the floor on my back, like totally with my arms out singing that song, you know, I was playing it over and over like probably four or five times. Um, and that's kind of a great picture of what we need to do just as Christians. Here we are, like, do what only you can do, you know? And um, that's, that's 
the same posture out of which the book came. That's brilliant. I love it. Kelly Fabian serves at Willow Creek Community Church, where she is the pastor of protection, conciliation, and doctrinal casework. She's written daily devotionals, small group content, and class curriculum, in addition to leading spiritual discipline workshops and spiritual practices. Formerly a trial attorney, Kelly has a certificate of spiritual formation through the Transforming Center and is pursuing a Master of Arts degree in New Testament at Northern Seminary. She lives in Chicago, and her book, Sacred Questions, is available now. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I hope that the questions and the conversation was enriching and encouraging and exciting to you. Go grab a copy of Kelly's book. Also, just a reminder, uh, my book comes out in April, on April the 9th, as I recall, discovering the place of memories in our spiritual life. I would love for you to pick up a copy, and I would love to hear from you of what you think. If you listen to this podcast uh, online and you're streaming, thank you. If you subscribe through iTunes, thank you for that as well. If you wouldn't mind giving a rating or a review, uh, that would be wonderful. So until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Peace, friends.